Psalm 39 is a psalm that we should use in order to reset our tongue, our time, and our truth. That's the big idea for today's message from Psalm 39. We should use this psalm as a tool to recalibrate, to reset our tongue, our time, and our truth. Before I read the psalm, I want to give you the outline, big idea right from the start here. It is a repetitive psalm. It has a flow in verses 1 through 8, where silence gives way to a meditation about the brevity of life and a prayer of deliverance. And then repeated in verses 9 to 13, silence gives way to a meditation about the brevity of life and a prayer of for deliverance. That's the outline of the psalm, and we'll walk through it. We will read through it in just a second. But I'm arguing that you should use this psalm in your life as a tool to recalibrate and reset your tongue, your time, and your truth. I heard earlier this week that there are some car manufacturers that have decided to make the speedometer four to five miles an hour faster than what the car is actually going. Any of you in the room find that frustrating to know that people out there have speedometers that aren't accurate to their speed? The person I heard this from said that they were using their GPS, which told them their speed, and then they looked at their speedometer and noticed that it was off. They did a little research and realized that that whole car manufacturer is doing that for all of their vehicles. And so this person tried their best to figure out, how can I recalibrate my speedometer? This is driving me crazy. For any of you that are very weight conscious, what if you found out at a doctor's visit that your scale at home was 10 pounds lighter or heavier? Probably the lighter would be the more concerning, wouldn't it? I'm actually 10 pounds heavier? Well, when you find that out, you'd want to reset your scale or argue with your physician. No, your scale is wrong. My scale is right. You need a standard for truth. And so whatever it may be, the speedometer in your car, the scale in your bathroom, the medicine you take that's based on your blood tests. I mean, imagine if the blood tests results were continually and consistently inaccurate. You need to recalibrate. You need a standard for what your medicine should then be as your doctor prescribes it. Do you get the point? The illustration? Psalm 39 is a message from God's word of ultimate, eternal, God-given truth for us. And it is meant to recalibrate your tongue, your time, and your truth. Let's read the psalm together and remember that there's going to be a repeat. You're going to notice silence. Brevity of life, prayer for deliverance. Two times, starting in verse 1, to the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said I will guard my ways, that I will not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. 
O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely, all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Well, just like the psalmists, we come and go and the grass withers and the flowers fade, but there will be something that will endure forever, and it is God's holy word. Amen? Well, that ends our reading of Psalm 39, and so I hope you can see why our outline and our big idea is that Psalm 39 is a message from God's word, the truth that will recalibrate and reset our tongues, our time, and our truth. So I want to work through the psalm just as we read it. And in the first part, we will look through the first half of these three ideas, tongue, time, and truth. And consider them for our own lives. But then as we repeat these ideas, I think, I th think it would be helpful for us to consider in the ways in which Jesus Christ himself is the standard of truth that we should align and reset ourselves to him and him alone. So let's do this. Let's go through Psalm 39 together and let's recalibrate to the standard of God's word and truth. First, let's reset our tongue. Verses 1 to 3 should be obvious, shouldn't it? David says in verse 1, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. And then you'll notice the book end at verse 3. Then I spoke with my tongue. So at the very beginning of verse 1, he's saying that I needed to shut my mouth, quiet my heart, and be silent. He even adds on to this description as guarding his mouth with a muzzle. And I think it's less the picture of his mouth being covered up by a muzzle and more the way that a muzzle is used to guard an animal, direct them the right way they should go. So that's why there's a repetition of, I will guard my tongue. I will guard it and direct it like a muzzle guards and directs an animal. 
And as long as I am in the presence of the wicked, I need to be silent. It really does beg the question, what's David dealing with right now? What's he going through? What's the situation that would lead to him to have the conclusion, "I I should be quiet? You don't find this phrase very often, in fact. You don't see tons and tons of psalms talking about silence before the Lord. In fact, the majority of the psalms are about expressing praise. And at the end of verse 3, you can tell that his silence has ended and he's speaking. And that's why I think it's a great little passage for us to look at and say, all right, what's going on in David's life and why does he say silence and then speaking? Which one is it? Well, first, the clue in verse 1 is that as long as he's in the presence of the wicked. He says he's mute and silent in verse 2. And then I held my peace to no avail. This is an extremely difficult phrase to translate. It just means, in terms of the most literal translation, I held my good. I held from saying good or speaking good. And there's various debates at how to read this phrase, but I think it parallels the being mute. So I was mute and silent, and I held my peace, or I held my speech from saying what was good, or, or maybe he's saying, I just couldn't keep it in any longer. And that's where you see verse 3, as his distress grew, his heart becomes hot and burns within him, and so then he speaks. Well, most people, I think, are rightly saying that this psalm as a psalm of wisdom, not only parallels Psalm 37, which I think it really does, but it also comes right after Psalm 38. And there's about 18 or so different verbs that are exact same used in these two psalms, which then shows yet again we have a psalm that's not just randomly thrown in there, but it should be a further meditation of what we just heard from Psalm 38. And I think if you do a little reading side by side, you're actually going to find that that's a very good way to read Psalm 39. Not just because of verbal parallels, but because of the themes. He is in distress. And he has sinned. And so it's making him feel like, I I cannot defend myself. I can't speak. I have nothing to say. We saw from Psalm 38 that David was sick, physically sick. Experiencing all kinds of pain. And it was because of God's discipline. And so when we read our psalm, you'll notice that he references this again. Verse 11. When you discipline a man with rebukes. And what's the reason for the discipline and rebuke? Sin. So Psalm 39 seems to be an extension of Psalm 38, but in this case, we're noticing that David's silence gives way to speech. And it's clearly in the presence of wicked people. And so I think what's going on here is that David's personal decision to keep silence while he's around other people is that I I don't really have a good defense. I don't know what to say. Think of Job, except Job's guilty, and he knows he deserves his sin. Job is often compared to Psalm 39 in terms of a good cross-reference. If you've never read the story of Job, read the first couple chapters. It won't take as long. But Job's actually a really big book, and you can kind of feel in Job Psalm 39. A man who's experiencing great suffering and turmoil, and then he's silent for a week. And then he can't hold it in any longer, and he speaks a lot. And then God rebukes him and puts him in his place. So there's there's some parallels, I think, between Psalm 39 and Job, but also as an extension of Psalm 38. So what's the takeaway then? What should you and I think 
Should we speak or should we be silent? Well, I think that it's obvious, to me at least, that there's a little bit of both that are going on here, and both of them can be good. So I think the takeaway for us in terms of recalibrating our tongue is to not go so silent that you have stuffed your feelings, stuffed your fears, anxieties, worries, concerns. Psalm 39 exists precisely to show and teach us that God understands the way that someone would feel in this circumstance. Derek Kidner's excellent commentary. This is a, a guy that wrote several great commentaries of the Bible. He's gone on in past, used to live in, in the UK, and he wrote about Psalm 39. This prayer, the very presence of it in Scripture, is a witness to God's understanding. And he knows how we will speak when we are desperate. So I think that there's a contrast here. There's, there's a balance and all of life, really, when we're rightly balanced, not based on our own standards, but God's, says that there will be moments where you should be quiet, where you should sit. Not with accusations against God. I think that's the first category that David's like, I don't really have a great defense against God. But certainly against the accusations of others, if he were to say, well, and then they would snap back at David. Another parallel with Psalm 39 is the book of Ecclesiastes, really the whole thing. But listen to these words from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Solomon presumably writes, Guard your steps when you go into God's house. Draw near to listen. It is better to draw near to listen than to offer sacrifice of fools, for they do not know the evil that they are doing. So don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God in his heaven, for God is in heaven, and you are here on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. So should you share your feelings with God in prayer? Or should you stuff them and just quiet your mind and your mouth and your heart and say, deal with it? I think Psalm 39 is telling us God understands the way we will feel when we're in turmoil, whether it is for our sin or just because of the pain and suffering in this world. And so I suggest to you, I want to give you a little boundary guideline. The Psalms never tell you just stuff your feelings. In fact, some argue that that phrase that was really debated in verse 2, I held my peace, but this was not good. This was not from a good place. So stuffing everything down, if that's your temptation, then this is a great encouragement to you to share, not just to anybody, and go around blabbing the, the deep, dark secrets of your heart, but first and foremost to God. But also remember the reverence and the holiness of God where Ecclesiastes reminds you, God's in heaven and you're on earth. Do you, do you know your place? So do you see the calibration that can be happening? The recalibration of there is a holy God. He wants to hear from us. He's asked and commanded us to cast our cares, our burdens to him. But the other hand, don't do so flippantly. Yeah, me and God, we're tight. We're cool. We're so relaxed. I'm authentic and I'm just going to be myself. And that's how I'm going to be around God. And there's no need for reverence. Do you see that in Psalm 39? I hope you do. I hope you can see that David is showing that there is a natural response to say, wow, this God, in all of his utter holiness, I should not just run my mouth. 
at him. But I can't stuff it in forever, which is why it's burning within him. And then he speaks. And I don't think the thing he speaks is what we see next in verse 4. I think the thing he speaks is his prayer for deliverance. And so it's as if you get a little bit of a theological wisdom lesson prior to him speaking what he really wants. When you're in distress, what do you want? Relief. Help. God, I need your help. And that's what he asks for. But before he does, he teaches us about the brevity of life. And I wonder if this would be another helpful recalibration that before you speak with your tongue, you remember who you are in light of who God is. And with that, let's turn to verses 4-6. David says, O Lord, make me know my end, as in the end of his life, as you see in the next phrase, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, All mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. All right, there's some very, very helpful things from this section. I hope it's just obvious just from reading it that if you were to reread it and memorize it and meditate on it, this could be helpful to recalibrate your time how you think about your life and the time you have in this world. First, verse 4. It's a prayer asking God, I need the weight of eternity to bear on my soul. I need you to teach me about the fragility of life in this world. So it's a prayer asking God to help us realize how short our days are, how fleeting this life is, that you have made my days a few handbreadths. This is a measurement tool like this, like the span of your fingers. So I know many of you think, wow, Phil, you're, you're, you're tall. My, my reach is over eight feet, four inches about. Last time I checked, who knows, I might be getting shorter. Eight feet, four inches. If we use just my rather tall human body as, as an illustration From eight feet, four inches down to my toes, many of you are thinking, yeah, that's how long my life is. I have a a long life ahead of me. And you're thinking about, you know, the, the very end of it and how at the end you're going to hopefully retire and enjoy those last 10, 20 years, hopefully. Isn't that the American dream? Work, 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 really hard, busy yourself, spend, 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 save, 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 and then hopefully at the very end, those last little... Ten years are just filled with relaxation, retirement, bliss. The Bible repeatedly tells us, don't think of your life like this, eight feet, four inches. Your entire life is like this, from my thumb to my index finger, your whole life. So how silly would it be for you to spend all these years, work, 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 real busy, 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 just so that this little part right here is really good. That's what Psalm 39 and the whole book of Ecclesiastes says repeatedly. Have you, have you had this lesson sink in? Is this a sobering, good, wake-up reminder 
The end of your life might actually be today, tomorrow. James 4, who are you to say that tomorrow you're going to such and such town or do this business? What is your life but a mist? You're supposed to think of that little like spray bottle in the bathroom when you get a little perfume and you go, that's you. Phil, and then I'm done. That's your life in comparison to the eternal reality of God's existence who has no beginning or end and who just is. Wow. Deep theology bears weight on practical living. The eternality of God who just has been and forever will be compared to your breath-like life. The word breath here is hevel in Hebrew. H-E-V-E-L, hevel. It's the word that comes up 40 two times or or whatever, something about 40-some times in Ecclesiastes, which is, again, another connection to the book of Ecclesiastes and Psalm 39. What does the writer of Ecclesiastes say over and over again from the very first line? Hevel, hevel. All of life is just hevel. And the word means breath. Many translators say vanity, meaninglessness, because they're trying to interpret the idea, but the word is breath. All of life, a wise man, after he's lived a long life, turns to us and says, after all that I've done and all the wealth that I have amassed, I'm at the very end of my life and I'm looking back and I want to tell some young people, here's what's up. Life, it's like a vapor breath. It comes and it goes and you're going to amass all of that wealth and then you won't get to enjoy it because just like that, your life will be over. In fact, not only does Ecclesiastes say that, that's what our psalm says right at the end in verse 6. Surely, for nothing you are busy. That's one of the ways to translate that word turmoil. Oh, what a great word for us 2022 Americans. Surely, so many members of Embassy Church are sitting here in the pew right now, busying themselves, heaping up goals and success for wealth, prosperity, and they don't know that they're never actually going to enjoy it. They will never enjoy the harvest gathering. The picture here is one who keeps planting seeds as a farmer and they keep getting this great big crop, but they never actually get to eat and feast. Listen to Ecclesiastes to say the same thing. This is from chapter 3. I hate all the toil that is under the sun. By the way, Ecclesiastes is not a happy book. I hate all the work that I have done while living on this earth under the sun, seeing that I have to leave it to someone who comes after me. And who knows, will they be wise or will they be a fool? Yet he will be a master for all that I have worked for and will use my wisdom under the sun. This is hevel. I could keep reading, but do you get the point? In Ecclesiastes, some of you right now are hoping that you're going to amass a great wealth And then you're going to pass it down to your children. And Ecclesiastes is saying, you know, when you're dead, some of them, they're going to spend it like fools. And you will have no ability to help redirect them to use that wealth wisely. This is the little lesson about recalibrating the meaning of your life by looking at the brevity and fragility of your life. Brothers and sisters, I think this is helpful for us. 
Too often are we getting caught up in the busyness of this world and not considering the length and the number of our days. Too often are we getting caught up in what the world's agenda is for our life and we are wasting just a little bit of time we have. So I want to encourage each and every one of you to use this psalm, Psalm 39, as a way to recalibrate your time. I would strongly urge you to do a follow-up exercise of talking through this psalm with your spouse, with a roommate, with a good friend here in this local church. Walking through, how are you spending your days? How many people have you heard in your life, like I have, who at the end of their life says something very similar to the writer of Ecclesiastes? I wasted it. I'm filled with regret. I so wish I would have spent more time with my children. I wish I would have spent more time this way. God's word is here as a gift for you to use to recalibrate the real meaning and purpose of your life. Will you receive that today? Will you really use Psalm 39 as a tool to reset today, 2022? You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. One recent book by John Mark Comer argues that hurry is the greatest enemy for spiritual growth in our day today. Pastor in the Portland area just wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Do you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life? Busy, busy, busy. For what? Now, this is why you need a good friend a loving Christian brother or sister to sit down and help you think, no, maybe I am busy right now in this season, and that is good. There are different seasons of life. So let's understand all of those things, and that's why a local church exists. Not just for you to hear a sermon and wrongly apply it, but for you to be in a local church where you can apply God's word in community groups, in one-on-one discipleship relationships, with good friends who will help you understand your hurriness is ruining your ability to know God. The greatest treasure you could have in your life. The greatest reason for you to exist is to know God and be known by him. Which is our third and final truth, isn't it? That you would recalibrate your tongue in light of eternity. And that you then would understand your truth. Reset your truth. Verse 7 and 8. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Do you guys understand why I said recalibrate your truth? There's this phrase going around these days. Well, that's good for you. It's not good for me. That's, that's your truth, not my truth. I would like all of us to unite ourselves around the idea there is one truth, It is God. He is the definition of ultimate truth. He has revealed that truth to us in his word. And our only hope, as David says, is God. Do you realize that you have no other hope to find truth in this world? You have no other hope in general, period, except from God. So as David does speak, recalibrate your tongue so you speak and say, God, I'm turning to you. I have nowhere else to go. Deliver me from all my transgressions, and do not make me the scorn 
of the fool. And I will wait. I will wait for as long as it takes because my only hope is that you would deliver me. That's the truth. That's your truth. Now the question is, will you receive, admit, realign, recalibrate? Go back to that opening illustration. The scale. Is it aligned with this so far in the message? Are you being like, yep. If I were to go step on the scale, it'd say, that's right. I should not stuff my feelings and emotions. I should share them, but wholly, reverently. I should learn how to pray and approach God in his word the way he has told us to. I should realize how fleeting my days are, and I should come to God, the only hope and my only definition of truth, and therefore I can live in this world balanced, right. Instead of the scales being so tipped the wrong way. Generally, have you noticed how often the scales get tipped in your favor? That's good for you, but um, that's not good for me because that would be inconvenient for me. That would take me out of the center of the universe. That would make me admit that I have made transgressions against the Lord. That would make me come to God and say, God, remove me my transgressions because I've sinned. Do you see why this is your truth and you need to accept it as ultimate truth? That we are sinners in need of a Savior and that there is a Savior who has provided hope? So let's read the last bits of this psalm and let's see how it repeats itself with a comment about silence, a meditation about breath-like brevity in life, and a declaration that there is truth that comes from God. So turn to him. But let's do that in these last few verses of Psalm 39, thinking not just about David, but about David's son, Jesus Christ, his great-great-grandson. So let's finish up this psalm and look at verses 7 and 8. And now, O Lord, sorry, verses 9 through 13, starting in verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. I am mute, and I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. So here we have that idea of silence repeated again on the basis of saying, why am I in this situation? In the first place, for, because God, the sovereign God, has allowed this situation into my life. And as we see in this psalm, for the sake of his discipline. For you are the one who did this. So what am I going to say? I have nothing to say. I feel like I've got no words. And so I'm silenced. I'm mute. I feel dumb. Here the dumb is more referencing just not being able to speak. And so it's the repetition of silence in verse 9 realizing that God is the one who has put him in this situation. So how do we rightly speak to God with reverence, but with confidence that we don't have to stuff our feelings? It's when we realize that the word for silence of shutting one's mouth that's used in Psalm 39, it's not a very common verb. And in fact, in the Old Testament, one of the only other places that it appears is Isaiah 53, 7. Outside of this psalm, the next time we see this verb, alam, that's used to describe the voluntary silence of a person is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 7. Let me read it to you in case you haven't read it in a while. This suffering servant was oppressed and afflicted 
and yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isn't it incredible to think that David, because of his sin, was silenced and shut up before God? But David's grandson, Jesus Christ, was silenced and shut up before all of the judges of the earthly government that tried him as a criminal, and he said nothing. He silenced himself. He shut his mouth. The silence of Jesus was not because of his sin. It was precisely because of your sin. And so we have in 1 Peter chapter 2, I think a helpful reference to our psalm the way our psalm talks about being a sojourner, just drop your eyes down to verse 12 and notice where David says, I'm a sojourner. I'm a guest like all of my fathers. And we're told in Psalm, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as a sojourner and exile to abstain the, plas- the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a commandment from the New Testament saying we, we should live like Psalm 39 says, acknowledging that this is not our home. We're only here for a short time. So live a godly life. Sounds good. Got it. How, how do I do that? How do I live a godly life with this short, vapor-like life? How do I live in such a way that even, even the non-Christian people around me look at my life and say, that person, they're kind. They're forgiving. They're filled with grace and humility. How do I do that when people are speaking evil against me? That God would get glory in that moment. Well, that's when you just keep reading the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it says, live like sojourners, like Psalm 39 says, and do so remembering that Jesus Christ, this is 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 21, he has called you to this, But remember that Christ also suffered for you. In your place, Jesus Christ suffered for you. And then he left us an example to follow in his steps. He didn't commit any sin. This is 1 Peter 2, 22. Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth because his tongue was rightly calibrated. And then when people reviled him, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten But he continued to entrust himself to him, the God who judges justly. And so he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to our sin and live to righteousness because it is by his wounds we have been healed. Psalm 38 talks about the sickness that you get because of your sin. And Isaiah 53 declares and announces that it is by the wounds of Jesus that you find healing. Psalm 39 says it is because of sin that you will sometimes just have no words and know what to say and be silenced. But then 1 Peter 2 tells us that Isaiah 53 also tells us that Jesus Christ experienced the silence before God. Dying and suffering in our place. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He who knew no sin didn't speak a word. Apply the gospel to your life. Remember the cross. Remember the silence of Christ when he was accused falsely and he said nothing. And see if that doesn't help you when people falsely accuse you. Or even just give you the confidence 
to speak to God knowing that there is now a mediator in the heavens who wants you to pray and not stuff your feelings. So Jesus Christ, he was silent with the perfectly calibrated definition of a tongue that is tamed. Secondly, Jesus Christ's life was cut short. He too knows what it's like to feel the busy, hurry pressures of this world and just in an instant your life being taken from you. Notice the way our psalm repeats this idea in verse 10 to 11. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely, all mankind is a mere breath. Hevel. Selah. I believe you can apply Psalm 39 to your life as a Christian today because you can know that God's discipline is only out of love and not punishment. That's what we learned last week in Psalm 38. That his rebukes for your sin are to correct you and recalibrate your life and help you remember the fleeting pleasures of sin. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. God consumes the things that you love so much that are just going to waste away like rust and moth destroy the pleasures and the material goodness that you you try and accumulate in this world the empty pursuits of worldly pleasure they get cut short when you die don't they just a, a breath of a life so be like jesus christ in the best possible sense follow in his steps realizing that he sought first the kingdom of god He gave up everything in this world. He gave up heaven itself to come down from heaven to earth. He who was rich became poor so that for our sakes we could become rich in him. If you apply the gospel in this way, I think you'll be more able to recalibrate and reset and say, even the difficulties and the discipline and the rebukes for my sin are only going to remove those things that I'm holding on too tightly. Things I need to let go of. And make God the ultimate treasure of my heart and my life. Because it will be just around the corner when your life feels to be cut short. And you don't want to be on that day on your deathbed thinking all of these regrets for how you spent it. And I think Christ's example for us and his substitution for us makes that possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's because our third and final point is that Jesus Christ is hope and truth incarnate. As we see in verse 12 and 13, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. It would be good for us to make sure you understand the weight of Psalm 39, verse 13. That last verse. Did you see what it said? I didn't make this up. It's not a translation problem. Psalm 39 concludes, Look away from me. You ever been so overwhelmed and so frustrated by your circumstances that the the heavy hand of God's discipline, you're just like, God, could you just give me some space? I need some space right now. That's what David's saying. 
I'm trying to just make sure you're connecting the dots. That he is saying, God, I know that throughout the Psalms, I've prayed and said, more than anything, I want the beauty of your face. But here, right now, you know what I'm feeling like? I just want you to turn your face from me. I'd like to just enjoy a couple days before I die. Because I'm not enjoying them. That's the expression of emotion that comes out in this last verse. It's raw, isn't it? And it just ends. The end. Amen. I'm telling you, Derek Kidner's quote, Psalm 39 exists so that you know that God knows. He understands your desperation. You should use Psalm 39 when you're like, I don't know what else to say other than God, I need you to just get your hand of discipline off. It hurts, it's heavy, it's too much, it's overwhelming. How else do you make sense of verse 13? It makes no sense. It's like Peter, when he meets Jesus for the first time and realizes who he's dealing with with Jesus, he tells Jesus immediately, depart from me. That's what, that's what Peter says. Go, go read Luke chapter 5. There are times when you will be standing before the presence of the holy God and your response won't be, I have a few things for you. I got some things I need you to sort out for me. It will be, ah, that's overwhelming. So how do we live in the reality of verse 13? How do you pray verse 13? How do you make sense of this? Well, again, I think it's in Jesus Christ. The father did look away from Jesus. And that look did not lead to Jesus smiling. He became a man defined by sorrow. And as he hung on the cross and the father turns his face away, he prays a prayer of dereliction, of abandonment, of feeling utter, desperate hopelessness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1 on the cross. And then he departed. And he was no more. That's Jesus. Life cut short, tamed his tongue, never said a single word that was sinful. And yet that's how his life ended. The father turned his face away, did not lead to a smile. And he was no more. You can know... That when you read the rest of the Bible, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose victoriously over death. And that the Father's face turned back, welcomed him into heaven as he ascended into heaven and received him and all that he did for each one of us. So you can know that the Father will keep his gaze upon you. He will never depart from you. And that you will smile again even if you are filled with such sorrow. Precisely because Christ bore all of our sins in his body, on the tree, dying for our place. I hope you can understand why the recalibration of our tongue like Christ's, the cutting short in the brevity of our life like Christ's, and the hope that Jesus Christ is the definition of hope and truth, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. That, my friends, is your truth. I beg of you, don't let today just be another day. Make today be a day where you really reset. Your scale might be off by one pound. Still needs reset. Your scale might be broken. 
It says, error. It does not function at all. I don't know where each of you are at. I'm sure that we're all over the map. I beg of you to read God's word in Psalm 39 in the light of all of Scripture. And make your tongue, your time, and your truth God's. As it's summed up in Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God incarnate. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of Jesus. We have no other reason to come to you, and we should not. We should be silent before you if it weren't for the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place. Your word declares triumphantly that we now have access to your throne of grace. That we have one mediator between you and us, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we praise you, God. We praise you that we can speak our feelings and be raw and honest about them and not fear that you're going to turn away from us and then we depart and are no more and are left forever and ever and ever. We can have confidence today that even in our death, it will be the worst thing in this life, but the best thing because it means we'd be ushered into your presence, kept and held by you, resurrected from the dead and living for all of eternity with your smile. Lord, we thank you for your loving discipline as we're reminded yet again that you care about us so much that you would remind us how fragile life is, how empty the things of this world are. Lord, we want to pray in the strange way that it sounds. We do want to pray that you would continue to use your hand to cut out like a surgeon the cancer of our sin, the idolatry of our heart, and all the things that we're holding dear that are robbing us from true and everlasting life. We pray that we would be reset to your word, that like a good choir, we would be a community of people that are singing in tune and in harmony with your word, that our voices, our hearts, our lives, all of them, our theology, that we would be in tune with you, God in harmony with your ways, and that we would see the blessing and the goodness of it, and that the watching world would see Embassy Church, the members of it, and they would say, wow, those people, they're good deeds. They have a different source of strength and a different source of truth, and you would get glory for it. So we pray, ultimately and finally, that you would get praise and glory from our lives, from this church, from our communal witness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.